feeling it. Alright. I think it sounds okay. Um, I say, I think it sounds okay. He says to the microphone. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, yeah. Steve here. Monday, April 30th already of 2018. I want to welcome everybody back. This is episode 41 of the Baked and Awake podcast. I'm your host, as I said, Steve, Steve Kaminsky. Thank you for listening. Uh, We're recording from Seattle this morning, as usual, here in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. Deep in the heart of the Washington State legal cannabis industry and adult recreational cannabis community at large. Uh, Yeah, Uh, been a few days since our last episode. Palu Kingston handled most of the heavy lifting on that last episode with a fantastic update on local politics as well as, uh, you know, sharing some of his personal journey and progression into owning his own dab rig and and rocking that at home and enjoying what that's all about. Uh, I really look forward to hearing more about how that long term goes for him. I have no doubt that you know, like most of us, he'll come to figure out that dabbing is super rad and can be done with decorum and, uh, you know, moderation and become one of a person's favorite ways, you know, to enjoy their medicine, their cannabis, their friend, their ally in such a way. So thank you, Palu, for that awesome segment and uh come sit down with me in the studio soon and let's rap in person about some cannabis related stuff and some local uh business and politics related matters let's see if we can't uh ease our music back the slightest bit as we're settling into the show here so I, before we jump into this week's content, I want to give you guys the briefest of uh, personal updates. Uh, two interesting updates. Uh, ask me again about this in a month or, well, let's say two weeks because I've got two weeks right now to return this thing. But over the weekend, we went to Costco. Uh, both Nicole and I have been sorely in need of a phone upgrade. We're both on iPhone 6 Pluses. Uh, hers was a hand-me-down from a friend's. Uh, she didn't even buy a 6 Plus when they came out. Um, and uh, I only had to because my 5 had been you know, dropped many times and was really, uh, really a hurting unit at that time. Uh, they had some battery charging issues too at the end there. Anyway, been on a six plus for like three years, been on iPhones for about 10 years. Uh, you know where I'm going with this. I switched it up. We went to Costco, we stayed with AT&T, uh, and we both got new phones. She stuck with the iPhone. She's going iPhone eight and I've got a brand new Samsung Galaxy S nine plus, which unbeknownst to me at the time of purchase I wasn't uh, I haven't you know I didn't go all geek boy on the phones this time around because I've been frankly kind of over it when it comes to smartphones I've been iPhoning since sometime around the 3GS era Um, used to test you know apps for uh, mobile platforms and and handled a lot of early Galaxy uh, series phones and a lot of uh, you know 
uh, Android phones over the years. Um, always liked them. wasn't you know wasn't uh, against them, but was definitely stuck in the iOS ecosystem, having Macs and having Apple devices at home and stuff. Uh, so I'm branching out and just trying something new. And frankly, it's just fun to play with something new and different. So, uh, so far enjoying it. Um, and yeah, the screen is real nice. Uh, it supposedly has better drop dust and, uh, like splash protection, even than the iPhone 10. Uh, it's got all the invasive biometrics in the world on it. Um, and so that would be a big part of, you know, why up to now I've uh, not I've been really slowing down on my interest in moving forward uh, phone wise because all the phones are converging in this direction where you know they want to do face ID to unlock it and fingerprint ID and all sorts of stuff um, turning on mics and cameras on purpose for digital assistance etc okay uh, and we will get into it a little bit more in time as I try to figure out how to make friends with an Android phone how to be secure with the Android phone, maybe there's some opportunity there to enhance my mobile, you know, communication footprint and security and tighten that up in some slight ways by being on the new operating system. Um, so, yeah, uh, we'll see also what, you know, deltas and challenges there are in usability for my wife and I who've been using the two iPhones for so many years together and, you know, airdropping files to each other and photo sharing using uh, iCloud photo sharing and some of their, you know, little tools. So, yeah, I mean, it's not trivial, right? You get, you get even, so we did a monthly plan this time around with these phones instead of dropping the 900 plus dollars each that these two phones cost by the way um you know not to put too fine a point on it but i mean i i don't care it's not a status thing for me i need my phone to live i need my phone to operate i need my phone for my job um i even create content for the podcast using the phone from time to time so by all means i'm not you know i'm not tripping on that cost although uh yikes holy shit you know what kind of a laptop could i buy for 900 bucks i bet a pretty decent one so uh yeah you know but arguably you've got one in your pocket right samsung even says they have a docking station coming for these uh galaxies so uh that would like allow you to simulate a desktop setup with them so anyway that's phone update check in with me in two weeks costco actually gives you two weeks to return the fucking phone too and they give you a thing a little pack full of extra charger and a battery pack and phone uh, car charger all sorts of fun stuff so if you're a costco member and you haven't shopped phones there yet which we had not um I can't say enough about how much easier that was dealing with them there than going to the Apple store, that's for sure, uh, or anywhere else. So, yeah, free plug for Costco, for goodness sakes. Oh, yeah, yeah, can't believe I just did that. Well, whatever, that just happened. It's too late now. Not taking it back. Uh, all right, so that's the phone update. One more update for you, though, uh, for everybody, and, you know, this is just in the... Um, in the realm of the backyard garden and the backyard um, uh, greenhouse hothouse that we have going um, for our veggie starts and for my uh, two medicinal uh, lake of fire strain plants that I have back there. Uh, my good friend came over yesterday. Um, Stevie comes by and uh, hung out and was kind enough to chill with me and, uh, you know, sort of go through uh, the process of 
you know, cleaning and tidying up the plants, doing some maintenance to them, doing some under trimming. And uh, we took a few uh, cuts for clones uh, off of those like fire so I can, you know, have another couple of plants later. Um, you know, ended up taking, you know, like 14 clones, most of which, you know, I won't ultimately keep, right? Uh, of them, we'll probably see, you know, most of them will root in some way, shape, or form, um, but we'll gauge their robustness and, you know, then winnow it down and keep it at a, first off, a legal quantity, but also at a quantity that we can manage and take good care of. Um, there's no point in keeping 14 clones if you can't, you know, uh, care for those and, and grow them all the way through anyway. So, um, but, you know, generally you, you want to take more than you need, analyze them as they go once they've rooted, see who the strong ones are, select those to keep, and, you know, do whatever, compost the rest. Um, so what my point on this update was, was I've been using some organic living soil. I've been using some organic amendments. I've been using a lot of TLC and attention. I've been in there with my eyes on the plants every day. I've got fans going. I'm manually opening and closing uh, vents, you know, and the door to the to the house to keep it, you know, not too wet inside there moisture so this is my you know feedback for anybody experimenting with you know small greenhouses to and getting started with you know early season planting in those greenhouses for their garden because that's a big part of what the goal was with this um with this little six by six or six by eight whatever this one is i think it's six by six uh square is uh you know get some stuff going that we can now transplant in here sometime in april and in may into the uh, raised beds that we have outside um, I would say the biggest challenge is the, the temperature swings, which are, you know, in excess of 20 or 30 degrees a day, um, from, you know, morning to night, maybe over 30 degrees in a lot of, in a lot of cases. And then the moisture is a little bit on the high side, even with fans going. So what happened? We go look at the lake of fire. We go to take clones and I'm telling you, these plants have been healthy. They are healthy. They still are healthy and they were beautiful, but what did I see? I'll tell you what I saw, everybody. I saw everything. I saw movement on my leaves. We had mites getting started. And I have done IPM. I've sprayed. Used a popular capsaicin solution spray a couple different times now uh, on these to, you know, supposedly attack soft-bodied insects of different kinds. Uh, we had we had light light mite activity, but it was there. Uh, you look closely, you can see the little frickin' mite poops and everything. You guys, you just gotta look close. You just gotta slow down and look close. Uh, we had powdery mold. Okay, uh, and these these plants are more manicured than what I've grown in the past, personally. Okay, everybody remember this is at my at my house. This is not smooth sailing. This isn't the work grow. This is just my backyard shade tree. Steve the caveman gardener doing his best, you know, trying to learn uh, grow. But I mean, so these plants have been better manicured than any that I've grown up to this point, and here they are, uh, still. A little bit too much moisture, a little bit too big a temperature swings, a little bit too many leaves, maybe contacting one another, keeping each other in the shade instead of in the bright light path of the light that's in there. And uh, yeah, so it was wild. I mean, we dipped every single 
cut that we took off of the plant. We, you know, threw we took more off of the both plants than we intended to um, culling all, anything that looked, you know, more than the mildest bit of uh, effect on it, um, leaf wise. Uh, so a lot of, you know, a lot of thinning on the plants. Maybe I'll take a picture later and share that on Instagram. Uh, you know, and my friend was really patient with me and really, you know, positive about it. He's a really experienced gardener and he's like, Hey, you know, this is, we all got to deal with this. You know, you probably need some beneficial mites and we need to get them established in here and get them near to the soil and installed in the soil in this room. We might, we might go in on an order together on some interesting, uh, you know, you literally have to find cool sources for these guys online for beneficial, uh, insects that would, uh, directly combat the, uh, I believe these are spider mites that we're up against here in the Pacific Northwest in almost all cases. Um, yeah, we dipped everybody uh, who we had in like a um, green cleaner. Yeah, green cleaner, which is like a soapy water and alcohol solution. Okay, um, that one's a name brand one. And um, then everybody who got cut got dipped. And uh, then we stood them all up in, in their dome. And I'm planting those clones directly into soil. Um, so I won't be peeking at them day in and day out to see, you know, when when exactly they've rooted. I'm just going to trust that I give them enough time and we're going to get there. Um, and, um, yeah, did a spray at the very end of the night, right as the lights were shutting off, of, uh, of additional uh, green clean all over the rest of the uh, two uh, plants that are, you know, still in veg right now. Going to be going into flower in a few weeks, so. Uh, all right, so that's the garden update. You know, like the the uh, everything else in the uh, in the greenhouse got sprayed with the same um, foliar application of the green cleaner. Uh, my lemon thyme and all my beets and onions and lettuces and veggie starts that are in there in the other tray uh, and the salvia plant too, because you know everybody, as far as I'm concerned, is is uh, you know suspect and vulnerable at this point in there. But, uh, I mean, you know, to, to walk in there and in passing, you'd never think that anything was going on whatsoever. You know, I go in there now and I'm on like yellow alert right now. Um, but I think everything's still progressing just fine. I think, you know, fortunately we caught everything really early. The powdery mold that I saw was ultra light and just on a few leaves. Um, and we, you know, got after that, uh, super aggressively. So, um, you know, now the, plants are both much thinner they're spaced out they have room i'm gonna be watching that airflow even more closely um and looking at what i can do to mitigate in there i might throw a dehumidifier in there um if i need to so gardens man they're they're work but oh so rewarding so much fun i, I mean i don't mind spending time in there at all like, i can hardly get out of there as a matter of fact so all right, so that's, you know, that's the updates, the personal updates. Uh, I will close by saying, without naming any names uh, specifically, that, um, you know, friends of mine who have reached out over the last few weeks to, you know, offer their support and uh, feedback, as, as always, and just uh, have, you know, positive things to say. Uh, in a couple of cases, a couple of you have reached out and offered to collaborate and everything with me uh, on podcast-related work. So, you know, I mean... I just want to thank you so, so much for that. I've been dragging ass this whole month and feeling a bit discombobulated and, you know, just really kind of struggling with 
you know, keeping like the right energy uh, behind my thought process in terms of getting ready for my episodes the last uh, couple of weeks. And, you know, it's just like probably a podcaster slump, right? Um, you know, I get back here today, though, and uh, plop down in the chair and, you know, try to minimize my canoodling and just get to work, right? Um, I have some stories I've been uh, tracking for the last few days. We're going to get into them right after a quick break here. Um, what I'd like to do here is I'm going to get myself ready to get safe. I think you guys should get ready to get yourself safe. Um, we have like, you know, three or four little news stories to come back to that uh, most of which are on, you know, subjects that we have been talking about and that we're just continuing to track, continuing to understand, continuing to comment on lightly to ourselves, namely me, to myself, and this microphone, and by extension, however, you folks. Um, so, yeah, let's do that. I'm going to get my act together. Might play this back for myself, see how it's sounding. Might not. Might just come right back and record some more. You'll find out in just a minute. Man Brain. You know you want it. You know you need it. Let me introduce you to our team of audio professionals, 100% committed to giving you the greatest extreme comedy podcast of all time. Um, what, what's, um, S-P-H, um, I'm so super cute. Send me your orgasmic release videos. You can get it rooting. You can get it tooting. You can get it doing doughies in your yeet. Mi nombre es Tio Yeti. And you just laugh at little Hank. I ain't gonna pretend I is fresh. But looks like you might like that. And most importantly, I'm Skulka. <laughs> Go to manbrainpodcast.com to get orally violated. Manbrain out. Uh, all right, so let's see here. I believe I got some stories for you. Let me tell you about our strain of the week super quick. Um, smoking fucking incredible this week. Fucking incredible is a strain name, believe it or not, and uh, it's an indica strain. We're going to talk about that in two seconds. Uh, it came from Doc Croc Cannabis Farm. Um, it was a big fat pack of pre-rolls. Little banger, 50.5 uh, gram little, you know, pinner joints. I love it. It's like a 25 pack or something. Got it at Three Kings cannabis uh retail shop in skyway uh very small very cool little chill shop up in skyway area uh my take on the fucking incredible definitely is it is true to form as a strong indica uh marked drowsiness may occur if you go after you know two or three of these in a day during the daytime hours um so uh you know getting a lot of value out of a bunch of half gram pinner joints that are probably fucking trim for all i know i doubt i'm even getting the best of the flower here from doc croc i should go back and get a, a eighth of their fucking incredible uh and try the flower uh and you know get a look at it uh that would be a lot of fun uh reading the description however of 
fucking incredible. I went to All Bud for this, and I want to give you guys the, you know, the, the rundown on fucking incredible. This is allbud.com's uh, description. Okay, and what they say here is fucking incredible is a 100% pure indica strain with unknown genetics due to breeder secrecy. This dank bud boasts a moderately high THC level, ranging from between 13 to 20% on average, and a myriad of potent indica effects. Fucking Incredible has an infamous aroma of pungent, earthy skunk and a taste akin to wet earth, with a potent aftertaste of skunk upon exhale. These buds have long, slender, dense, neon green pepper-shaped nugs with a spattering of thick, furry, fiery orange hairs. These nugs have rich purple and blue undertones and are dusted with a fine layer of almost translucent trichomes and a sweet, sticky resin. This description's downright poetic. And I will say these, even these, like, you know, make popcorn and trim probably um, roll, uh, pre-rolls. They have lovely flavor. It's got great, great mouthfeel and, and a sweetness to it. Um... So, to continue, users describe the fucking incredible high as exactly that. Fucking incredible. You'll feel a warm body buzz start in the back of your neck and head that slowly spreads throughout your body, leaving you numbed and relaxed. This feeling is accompanied by feelings of ease and complete mind and body pain relief. As the high continues, you'll experience a strong case of the munchies, before being eased into a deep and uninterrupted sleep where you will dream of unicorns. <laughs> Due to these potent effects, fucking incredible is said to be... <coughs> Excuse me, dying. Said to be an ideal strain for treating patients suffering from conditions such as chronic pain, stress, fatigue, and depression. I like it. I thought it was a really colorful description, and uh, sure, largely fits maps to what I'm enjoying this week. So we're smoking on some fucking incredible. Try it out sometime. Let me know what you think about it. All right. So our first story, uh, real story, you know, half hour into the show, whatever, is uh, Old Biz, and this is on our good friend Cannabis Hyperemesis Syndrome also known as the nebulous, strange, cannabis, nauseous illness that is popping up in emergency rooms all over the country, or more acutely put and glibly put, scrometing, or screaming while vomiting. Thought to be attributed to a allergy to either the highly potent, modern, medical and recreational cannabis strains that are being bred today, or potentially some pesticide uh, being applied in the growing process, or some other unforeseen allergy to a terpenoid or a cannabinoid other than THC, but generally just giving pot a bad name and scaring the crap out of probably kids all over the country. So let me see if I can get this link to work for me looking at marijuana times here 
This is this is this article predates my original reporting, if you can call it that, on this topic from last fall when I think I first brought it up uh, and became aware of it myself. Um, so this article is all the way from last January. As I said, the source is the marijuanatimes.com.org, excuse me, and our writer is Chloe Summers. But the headline here, and I wish I had found this story first, everybody, although maybe it was more sensational finding it the way I found it. But the headline is, finally, the article on cannabis hyperemesis syndrome that readers deserve. A recent CBS article irresponsibly reported an increase in the controversial cannabis hyperemesis syndrome in legal use states. The report lacks scientific proof, and according to experts, the symptoms are so rare it could simply be an allergen to certain terpenes or an issue with unregulated flour. We have a quote here. This drives me nuts, began Martha Montemayor, clinical nurse consultant and director of Cannabis Clinicians, Colorado. Yes, cannabis hyperemesis is a real thing, she continued. But it's very, very rare, and does not mean that every time you vomit in your life, it's all because you took a puff off a joint in high school. See, and that's the extent of the, you know, incorrect way in which this is being reported and spread around as something to be feared. She said it's like saying the gas station egg salad sandwich you ate in 2004 is still making you sick 12 years later. We have patients being refused treatment for actual flu vomiting in Denver emergency rooms because they said yes when asked if they use cannabis. The controversy. Mark Malone, executive director of the Cannabis Business Alliance, agrees with the medical professional. He even goes a step further, suggesting that the link between CHS symptoms and cannabis use is far-reaching and unsupported. He calls it an alleged disease, because real numbers are not presented, and the fact that the study relies on information that patients, quote, were more likely to endorse marijuana use, proves nothing. I would tend to agree, and the articles that we read were not horribly rigorous. Um, go back and check them out. Maybe I'll try to find the links uh, to the episodes where we covered this earlier. The facts, they continue. This is a recent phenomenon affecting very few people around the world. Since the term was coined, apparently way back in 2004, I didn't realize that, holy shoe moly, uh, medical reports diagnose patients with habitual marijuana use presenting the following symptoms. Cyclic vomiting. Abdominal pain. Compulsive showering. An improvement of the above symptoms with cessation of cannabis. The circa 2009 study cited in the CBS article is titled Cyclic Vomiting Presentations Following Marijuana Liberalization in Colorado. The report reveals in the end there is no definitive link. 
Quote from the study, the 2009 study here. Let's call it a paraphrase, I'm not sure. Patients presenting with cyclic vomiting after marijuana liberalization were more likely to have marijuana use documented in the ED record, although it is unclear whether this effect was secondary to increased use, more accurate self-reporting, or both. While a few studies have generated interest in this topic, there have been no epidemiologic studies associating marijuana use with CHS. According to the same study, this deficit is likely multifactorial due to the lack of formal diagnostic criteria for CHS, the relatively low prevalence of this syndrome, and the social stigma regarding marijuana use that discourages self-reporting. I don't even need to comment on that. It's so evident. Malone is one of the many cannabis experts who remain skeptical about CHS. He said the report is unfounded and not well-researched. His opinions represent a camp of professionals who were not represented in either the CBS article or the versions Huffington Post, Daily Mail, and Mary Jane's Medicinals published on their sites. The industry in Colorado has not heard of this issue until this news story, added Malone. A third study from 2012, a little bit more recent, used a relatively small sample of just 98 patients, only 10 of which followed up with the researchers. So they start with 98, they get a responding group of 10, and then they still report findings based on this? I love it. In total, 7 of the 10 patients in the study stopped using cannabis bullshit. 6 of the 7 patients went into remission after stopping cannabis. In the 2009 report, they go on here, the researchers admit their interest in the subject was sparked by few reports, which suggested a, quote, novel syndrome of cyclic vomiting associated with repeated marijuana use. The report goes as far as to note, despite a high rate of marijuana use in our community, the absolute prevalence of cyclic vomiting remained low, underscoring that CHS is a relatively uncommon condition. Uh, other possibilities. In her medical opinion, Montemayor said cannabis hyperemesis is a real but rare phenomenon that appears to be strain-specific. Of the 20,000 patients she's helped join the Colorado Registry since 2010, there's only been one reported case. She said another clinic owner with three times more patients than hers has also had one patient who experienced it. In both of those cases... Switching strains solved the problem. In both of those cases, the cannabis used raised questions. It wasn't tested for molds, pesticides, or any other contaminants. It had also not been tested for terpenes. You know, yeah, I mean, mold is a really very likely vector for the type of symptoms these people have been running into. Think of terpenes as the building blocks of essential oils, Montemayor explained. They are the little short-chain isoprenes that give plants their fragrance. Now they go on to use a really, I don't know, kind of gross, but, you know, that's fine. I, I can't come up with a better analogy than this, but um, 
So cannabis that smells like pine trees contains some of the same terpenes found in actual pine needles, which means that you're, if you're allergic to pine trees, you may want to avoid using cannabis that smells more like pine. It's the pine terpenes that could be causing negative symptoms. Nah, I mean, okay, sure. Totally. You know, breathing that shit in. If, if they irritate you, if a particular terpene does, something as obvious as that, definitely avoid it. Anyway, Montebayer, that nurse that they started this article off with, she, she here says again, it's clearly stemming from molds and contaminants, not the THC. Bottom line, use tested medicines. Uh, remember the story features an Indiana man. Indiana doesn't have legal cannabis. CBS never addressed the lack of quality control for what he was illegally obtaining in their report. Well said. Malone wants to remind consumers that the cannabis industry stands behind its products, products that are more regulated than any other food or drug in the country. So they're starting to wind it down here, but they make the point that the article has made its rounds being picked up by dozens of news outlets. Besides the one-sided storytelling, CBS also threw in a pinch of classic anti-pot propaganda with a quote that feeds into the stoner stereotype. And here it is. The And I remember reading this in the story. We, we maybe commented on it, maybe didn't, but... Quote, Now all kinds of ambition has come back now that I've quit smoking pot. My words. The patient told CBS, quote, I desire so much more in life, and at 37 years old, it's a little late to do it, but better now than never. And that was pretty much where they literally signed off that article right there. It was like, oh, blah, 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 feels better, he says, since he's stopped, you know, uh, using, anyway. I mean, he was giving him fucking cyclic vomiting and scrometing and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah. They point out his level of laziness has no relevance. It's not clinical <laughs> and not a symptom of CHS. So all true. Um, anyway, so yeah, a lot of readers, you know, had flooded that original article and there, you know, hundreds of comments on that uh, story. I thought that was, yeah, a, a well-balanced kind of uh, counterpoint to the, I don't know if it's hysteria, but the anxiety being tried to be churned up by stories about cannabis hyperemesis aka scrometing <laughs> I, think I, I, I read that word in one other story somewhere and I don't even know where so uh, but it's fucking funny so sorry alrighty alright so that's that one marijuana times good story thank you thank you marijuana times alright next up Continued business, sort of uh, on the Cambridge Analytic uh, security flap. Recent story that we've been talking about and tracking. We're all on Facebook. Cambridge Analytic happily made off with a lot of information that Facebook allowed them to due to their terms of service, uh, you know, huge uh, holes in it. In it. Um, that was then in turn used ostensibly by one campaign, maybe by both, 
to attempt to manipulate or effectively manipulate the outcome of the recent U.S. presidential elections, right? You go back just a few episodes, you'll find a story about that that we talked about when it first sort of was breaking. So this is a a story that they're trying to make into a non-story, so I'm noting it here so that we can watch it together and see if we hear more about it because as is I believe always the case with stories like this we'll come to find out that the leak was worse than we thought and that the uh, conduct on the part of the companies the parties involved was less forthright and uh, more shitty and shady than we thought but from my good friends at Slashdot via I want to say Bloomberg here okay Uh, but I'm reading you know I got it via Slashdot and I think the source is Bloomberg.com. What we have is a story. Yep, it is Bloomberg. Let's go to the original source. This is April 29th, 2018. Selena Wang. Twitter sold data access to Cambridge Analytica. Linked researcher. So uh, a, a Cambridge Analytica linked group. Some spinoff company. Let's read about it. Twitter Inc. sold data access to the Cambridge University academic who also obtained... Yeah, so Alexander Kogan is the name. Alexander Kogan had access to the data for one single day in 2015. Twitter removed Cambridge Analytica as an advertiser as a result of this, is supposedly the um, consequence that happened. Um, Twitter Inc. sold data access to the Cambridge University academic, who also obtained millions of Facebook users' information that was later passed to a political consulting firm without the user's consent. Alexander Kogan who created a personality quiz on Facebook to harvest information, later used by Cambridge Analytica. Okay, I'm going to read that sentence again. (laughs) I'm going to start that sentence again. Alexander Kogan, who created a personality quiz, keywords, on Facebook to harvest information, later used by Cambridge Analytica, established his own commercial enterprise, Global Science Research, or GSR. That firm was granted access to large-scale public Twitter data covering months of posts for one day in 2015. If you've got a computer, you guys, you get access for one day, you got it all. You got you got that snapshot of a gigantic subset of users that spans months or years. A relevant period of months or years, I imagine, would be my guess. They didn't get just some random chunk of time, okay? He got, he got access to time that meant something to them that would form, you know outputs out of an analysis of that time set that informed their decision-making processes. In this case, obviously, it would appear to be political. They go on. In 2015, GSR did have one-time API access to a random sample of public tweets from a five-month period from December 2014 to April 2015. Twitter said in a statement to Bloomberg, based on the recent reports, We conducted our own internal review and did not find any access to private data about people who use Twitter. See, so that's, you know, we investigated ourselves and found that we did nothing wrong. You know, and we investigated ourselves and found that nothing really happened. So you guys can all take my word for it, me being random Twitter spokes head, you know, of the week. The company has removed Cambridge Analytica and affiliated entities as advertisers. Twitter said GSR paid for the access. It provided no further details. 
So they sold it. Okay? Remember that. Just like Facebook. Just like everybody. We're being bought and sold, you guys. And we're being bought and sold using the which Disney princess do you fucking resemble? Quizzes. Which I've been saying for years. And all of us who willingly bear the burden of such onerous, you know, derisive labels as conspiracy theorist or tinfoil hatter, blah, 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 whatever you want to call us, who talk about this stuff when it's not popular to talk about, when people are just chuckling over which Marvel superhero wants to marry you or what have you, and who you got versus who your friends got. just you know this is this is what we're talking about this is what they're doing it's real it's not a it's not a theory it is a conspiracy <laughs> maybe that's what i should have called this podcast it's not a theory <laughs> all right yeah it's just smoke some more indica <laughs> The company's removed him, blah, 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 blah. Didn't, yeah, so he, you know, he was in compliance with Twitter's policies, but didn't elaborate on what level of access he received. Explanations needed, they say here. Twitter provides certain companies, developers, and users with access to public data through its application programming interfaces, APIs, or software that requests and delivers information. So you're an app developer, you have an app or some other uh, type of, uh, you know, client that needs an API from Twitter or Facebook or any of the other social medias. It may be a formal, you know, app that you install on your phone, or it might just be a backend powering something that they're using to create, you know, infographics and visualizations. Who knows what? It really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. They can leverage an API to request and pull data from these big databases, which are the, you know, everything you've ever liked, everything you've scanned, what you did click on, what you didn't click on, whose stuff you commented on, who's your, who are your friends with, how active all of you and your friends are in terms of how many times a day you're on Facebook in the first place, how many times you visit the groups that you like, you know, what those groups are all about, what the content of the conversations going on and the threads in those are. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So let's see here. I'm trying to see if we need to read the whole rest of this story or if you've gotten the gist. So here you go. So to 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 put a little closer eye on it and you know there cuz they they did it for us here. I'm not doing the work. Bloomberg did the work. Um you know, Twitter does you know give us a little bit more more clarification here. I guess once they twist their arm. Let's see here. Enterprise customers are given broadcast data access, which includes the last 30 days of tweets or access to tweets from as far back as 2006. To get that access, the customers must explain how they plan to use the data and who the end users would be. Oh, so what? Twitter gets to know your ideas, you know, so that they can copy them <laughs> themselves before they decide if they're going to give you the info. That, they're gonna, that you're paying for handsomely. Twitter doesn't sell private direct messaging data and users must opt in to have their tweets include a location. But once you have, then 
Twitter's going to hand that over too. Twitter's data licensing and other revenue grew about 20% to $90 million in the first quarter. Okay, so it's like $360 million a year if they don't grow. <laughs> they just stay on par with that this year. Uh, in revenue from this kind of stuff. Social media companies have come under intense scrutiny over reports that Facebook failed to protect the privacy of its users. Companies like Twitter tend to have access to less private information than Facebook. The latter has said that Cambridge Analytica, which worked for President Donald Trump's 2016 campaign, may have harvested data on 87 million users. You know, I say to that, uh, Twitter probably pulls data from Facebook APIs. (laughs) So... They probably get a lot of that, a lot of that stuff through trickle down through how Twitter leverages what it's already trying to do with their users. I don't know. It's a good time. They see here that um, about two hundred seventy thousand people downloaded Kogan's personality quiz. Um, that app, you know, when you like click and it gives you, you know, oh, I need these permissions to play the game. That quiz app, which shared information, the people and their friends, that was then on on the people and their friends, that was then improperly passed to Cambridge Analytica. You know, this guy handed it off to Cambridge Analytica, probably not in, you know, in channels that would have included going back to probably and letting Twitter know, hey, I want to sell this to these other guys who you probably already told no because <laughs> you didn't like their use case. Facebook Chief Executive Officer Mark Zuckerberg has testified in front of Congress about the misuse of data. And lawmakers have called on Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey and Google CEO Sundar Pichai to testify as well. Criticism of Twitter's failure to prevent misinformation and abuse on its platform has risen since the 2016 election. In the first quarter, the company removed more than 142,000 applications connected to the Twitter API that was collectively responsible for more than 130 million low-quality tweets during the period. The company has also limited the availability of users to perform coordinated actions across multiple accounts. So... All right, it's Twitter. It's not Facebook. But I think my point that I made previously was it's not just Facebook. It's all of your social medias. Here's one of the other bigger, biggest, top 10, top 5 social news, social blogging platforms out there. They're doing versions of this. This is the one we found out about. You think there aren't hundreds more? cases of this you don't make 90 million dollars in one quarter selling the data one time to one customer okay and we all know that once data is out there somewhere as we've seen here as this story implies homeboy one got it from twitter and he handed it off to cambridge all right gst got it through their request for the data gsr they got their one day access they handed it off to Cambridge Analytica improperly probably to get paid themselves so we're being sold and resold maybe something to think about Uh, you know I don't mean to get all 
you know, so boxy and pompous about it. Um, but I also don't think that this is, you know, the kind of thing that is fucking nebulous or difficult to understand at all. This is a big deal. It's something to continue to watch and try to figure out how we, how we as a society, that being a super technological society, who are still human, you know, can find the safe middle path. The path of, like, integrity to the user. Putting some power back in our hands of control over our our footprint and who's analyzing our every thought. <laughs> Alright, well, we're charging. We've got about 10 minutes left. I think I got one more story for you. And it's related to that. Alright, so those guys were using our data creepily. Still are. They're not done. They're doing it today, right now. Who else is doing weird things with people's brains? How about the country of China? So what do I have here? Where's my... What's our source for this one? Yeah, the South China Morning Post. Okay? It it could be total malarkey, but... um, Yeah, scmp.com. Southchinamorningpost.com. Under the heading News, China Society. Forget the Facebook leak. China is mining data directly from workers' brains on an industrial scale. Yeah, I think on that note, we better light another joint. To take us through the conclusion of this story in this episode. All right. Who wrote this? This came just came out. Yesterday. They even updated the story already in the last 24 hours. It says here, government-backed surveillance projects are deploying brain-reading technology to detect changes in emotional states in employees on the production line, the military, and at the helm of high-speed trains. This was written by Stephen Chen. He begins, On the surface, the production lines at Hangzhou... Hong Zhu, Zhongheng Electric, look like any other. Workers outfitted in uniform staff lines, producing sophisticated equipment for telecommunication and other industrial sectors. But there's one big difference. The workers wear caps to monitor their brainwaves, data that management then uses to adjust the pace of production and redesign workflows according to the company. Think um, keystroke recording and monitoring, you know, and like mouse tracking and mapping for you in the real three-dimensional world. And and everyone around you. (laughs) Uh, 
The company said it could increase the overall efficiency of the workers by manipulating the frequency and length of break times to reduce mental stress. Hangzhou Zhongeng Electric is just one example of the large-scale application of brain surveillance devices to monitor people's emotions and other mental activities in the workplace, according to scientists and companies involved in the government-backed projects. Concealed in regular safety helmets or uniform hats, these lightweight, wireless sensors constantly monitor the wearer's brainwaves and stream the data to computers that use artificial intelligence algorithms to detect emotional spikes such as depression, anxiety, or rage. So they're applying AI, they're giving AI the job of analyzing the data because of course it would be difficult if not impossible for us in any kind of individual or, you know, team organized conventional, you know, fashion to probably meaningfully parse the level of data that they're undoubtedly trying to process here. Yeah. To finish that sentence again, to like re rewind it, use artificial intelligence algorithms to detect emotional spikes such as depression, anxiety, or rage. So then, to my surprise, he says here in this article, this technology is in widespread use around the world. It is? Jesus. But China has applied it on an unprecedented scale in factories, public transport, state-owned companies, and the military to increase the competitiveness of its manufacturing industry and to maintain social stability. It's also raised concerns about the need for regulation to prevent abuses in the workplace. This technology is also in use at the Hangzhou at State Grid, Zhejiang Electric Power, where it has boosted company profits by about 2 billion yuan. That's about 315 million US since it was rolled out in 2014, so just a couple few years ago. According to Cheng, Jing Zhao, an official overseeing the company's emotional surveillance program. According to him, uh, according to Cheng, quote, there is no doubt about its effect. The company and its roughly 40,000 employees manage the power supply and distribution network to homes and businesses across the province, a task that Cheng said they were able to do to higher standards thanks to the surveillance technology. But he refused to offer more details about the program. Zhao Binjian, a manager of Ningbo Shenyang Logistics, said the company was using the devices mainly to train new employees. The brain sensors were integrated in virtual reality headsets to simulate different scenarios in the work environment. It has significantly reduced the number of mistakes made by our workers, Zhao said, because of improved understanding between the employees and company. But he did not say why the company was, why the technology was limited to trainees. The company estimated that the technology had helped increase its revenue by 140 million yuan in the past two years. So it's on its way to, obviously, it, it's clearly going to pay for itself and then some. 
One of the main centers of the research in China is Neurogap, a central government-funded brain surveillance project at Ningbo University. The program has been implemented in more than a dozen factories and businesses. Jin Jia, Associate Professor of Brain Science and Cognitive Psychology at Ningbo University's Business School, said a highly emotional employee in a key post could affect an entire production line, jeopardizing his or her own safety as well as that of others. When the system issues a warning, the manager asks the worker to take a day off or move to a less critical post. Some jobs require high concentration. There is no room for a mistake, she said. Jin said workers initially reacted with fear and suspicion to the devices. They thought we could read their mind. This caused some discomfort and resistance in the beginning, she said. After a while, they got used to the device. It looked and felt just like a safety helmet. They wore it all day at work. It's not clear here, like, if it's being employed all day, every day, ongoing, or if they're using it, like, tactically and going in and, like, reviewing a team and then, you know, creating some reports out of it and moving on. I don't know. Jin said that at present, China's brain-reading technology was on par with that in the West, but China was the only country where there had been reports of massive use of the technology in the workplace. This is the hilarious, this is the funniest shit I've read in the whole article. In the United States, for example, applications have been limited to archers trying to improve their performance in competition. I guarantee the military's used it. And is probably using it daily on their guys. So that's got to be bullshit. But of course it won't be reported on for some time. Who else? I'm not I'm not sure, but anyway. The unprecedented amount of data from users could help the system improve and enable China to surpass competitors over the next few years. Yeah, just in the case of the number of users, right, that they can get data from. With improved speed and sensitivity, the device could even become, quote, a mental keyboard, allowing the user to control a computer or mobile phone with their mind. The research team confirmed the device and technology had been used in China's military operations, boom, <laughs> but declined to provide more information. The technology is also being used in medicine. Yeah, they're using it here to, like, control violent patients, etc. All right, so, you know, I'll let you guys read the rest of the story. Um, you know, they're, they're cautionary here. They're cautionary. Um, they wrap up with, you know, lawmakers should act now to, you know, the selling of Facebook data is bad enough. Brain surveillance can take privacy abuse to a whole new level. Lawmakers should act now to limit the use of emotional surveillance or emotion surveillance and give workers more bargaining power to protect their interests, Kiao said. The human mind should not be exploited for profit. Couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. Um, all right, that's, that's us. That's, that's gotta be over an hour. Yep, we're just, we're just transcending an hour right now. I thank you all for your attention. I have enjoyed bringing you these stories this week. Uh, and I mean, I don't enjoy reading about, you know, scary AIs analyzing workers brainwaves in China and sitting here and crowing to you that I'm right about, you know, Skynet being emergent um, or anything of the sort. Um, I'm delighted to have sat down and 
felt the flow and, you know, felt like, hey, April's over. We got a new month starting. Um, April showers bring May flowers, right? That's what they say. So let's let's look for those. Uh, it's Monday. You guys just go out there and whoop this week's ass for me and then tell me how you did it. And do that on Instagram. Find me there at Baked and Awake. Email me anytime at talk to us at bakedandawake.com. Uh, if you love the show and you want to have some fun, go to tpublic.com and look for the t-shirts by Baked and Awake. And I'll put the link in the show notes. You can fuck with t-shirts there and uh, stickers and coffee mugs and all sorts of fun stuff. And every purchase kicks a couple of bucks my way. Um, so that, you know, couldn't be cooler. Uh, and yeah, if you're a fellow podcaster, if you're thinking about getting into podcasting even and aspiring, uh, one of the things that I have the most fun with between episodes and that I'd love to invite you to join me, uh, in, uh, the community at the podcast builders league on Facebook. Uh, just take a look on Facebook in groups, probably just through a natural search podcast builders league. You'll find us and, uh, we'd love to have you. Even if you haven't got started yet, even if you're just getting ready to roll up those sleeves and wade in and you have some questions from the group, uh, we're all just indie podcasters and, you know, there's a few people in, in that mix in there in that community who have been broadcasters for decades and podcasters for years. Uh, so we're fortunate there uh, that we do have some depth in the ranks on the benches who are, you know, participants and they get they get right at you and they tell you everything you want to know. Um, so yeah that's that have a great week you guys are all awesome find me online stay safe smoke that indica and do shit anyway